How long should a baby be a baby? Certainly there are rare exceptions to the normal pattern. Sometimes the curse of sin and the moving of God's sovereign plan results in a baby who never matures normally. Certainly that's no reason to kill the baby, as some in our society might argue, because of Down syndrome or cerebral palsy or some other uh, problem like this. Nor should we fail such a child for, or blame such a child for his failure to mature. But what if the baby never matures because he chooses to be a baby? What if he's 15 and he still expects his mom to cut up his food for him and dress him in the morning? What if he's 25 and he still expects his dad to pay all of his bills and to drive him up to uh, Best Buy to buy video gaming things, doesn't have a job, he's not responsible? Well, in those sorts of situations, I think we would assign some kind of blame to the person for not having matured, right? Right after this description that Bob just read for us of Jesus' maturity in learning obedience, the author of Hebrews rebukes those who are spiritually speaking babies. Not for being new Christians, but for being old Christians who never grew up. Later in chapter 6, he's going to warn further against laziness. And so Hebrews 5 and 6, I think, is telling us that we should grow up like Jesus and stop being lazy in Jesus. First of all, we need to grow up like Jesus. Jesus was, according to this passage, the section we just looked at, called as a high priest. I'm not arguing that we should necessarily be called as a high priest, but this lays the foundation for what we see particularly in verses 7 through 10. When he was called as a high priest, unlike the Levite high priest, he was not a sinner. We saw this in verses 14 through 16 of the previous chapter. Although he was patient with sinners, notice this this uh, explanation here in verses 1 through 3. Every priest offers gifts and sacrifices for sins, can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is beset with weakness and has to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Jesus was not a sinner, so he didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. And he didn't experientially know sin and sympathize with sin in the way that we often do. Well, we all make mistakes. We all mess up. We all do wrong, right? Nevertheless, as we saw at the end of chapter 4, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. So despite his perfection, like the priests in the Levitical system, Jesus shows compassion and concern and care for those who are sinners. So unlike the high priest, he was not a sinner, though he showed compassion. Like the high priest in the Levite, Levitical system, he was chosen by God. Verse 4, no one takes the honor to himself, but is called by God. Now later in, in future chapters, we're going to see that the nature of his priesthood is different from the Levite priesthood in that he was not a Levite. He's called according to the order of Melchizedek. And so we see a glimpse of that in verse 6. But the point that's being made here is not the differences, but the fact that like those priests of old, he was chosen by God to serve in that capacity. So Jesus was called as a high priest. In connection with that, he was an obedient son. Look at verse 7. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears 
the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Now, we don't know if the author of Hebrews had a specific instance in mind when he refers to this. Perhaps the one that most closely fits it would be Jesus' prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. But this attitude of prayer and fervent devotion to God characterized Jesus throughout his life, right? So we saw that even in Matthew 14 this morning. Jesus goes away from the crowd up on the mountain by himself to pray. Jesus was constantly talking to God the Father and modeling prayer for us in that respect. We could say that he was pious in his devotion to God. Now there are people who are apparently devoted to God. And the way that you know it is because they tell you. That was not Jesus' manner. He withdrew. He was alone. He would pray to God in the context of large crowds, like when he uh, fed the 5,000. But his prayers and his devotion to God was not put on as a show to impress other people. It was just simply a fact of who he was in his relationship with God the Father. Furthermore, it says in verse 8, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. We saw this earlier in chapter 2, I believe in verse 10. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And when it says to perfect him, it does not mean to add to him something that he was missing in terms of his being God. But what it has to do with is him experiencing firsthand what it means to be human, obeying perfectly in the midst of all those things. Even at the greatest point of suffering, would he go to the cross or not, he obeyed, went to the cross, and um, defeated temptation, obeyed God perfectly in a scenario in which every one of us would have failed. So Jesus was an obedient son, devoted to God, learning obedience through suffering, and becoming the source of salvation and perfection. We see this in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So I said, grow up like Jesus. Why do I say that? Because the author of Hebrews lays out, Jesus is a faithful high priest. Jesus is an obedient son. And then what comes next? Verses 11 through 14. Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So the question that I think this passage raises for us is, have you grown up? What are some of the ways to evaluate that? You have not grown up if you don't listen. How many of you have ever had to repeat things when you've said them to your kids? How many of you have ever had things repeated when they were said to you because you weren't listening the first time? Okay. So, the author of Hebrews says, We have much to say about Jesus, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. You didn't listen. You're not paying attention. You're not focused. You're not following what I'm saying. It's a sign of a baby, spiritually speaking. 
You don't listen and people have to keep telling you the same basic truths over and over and over again. Okay? What's the next thing? You didn't pass on truth by becoming a teacher. Look at verse 12. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need somebody else to teach you. The same things over and over again. We tend to think of the Christian life in terms of progression like this. You're an unbeliever. You trust Jesus. And then you attend church for the rest of your life. That's a simplistic way of putting it, but sometimes we think that's all there is to the Christian life. But notice what the author of Hebrews is urging us to do and be. By this time you ought to be teachers. The point of truth is not that you believe it for the first time and you keep hearing it all the rest of your life and you keep soaking it up and you keep receiving it and that's it. The point of it is that you believe the truth and then you receive it and then you pass it on to other people. Spiritual maturity is not, I show up in church every Sunday. Spiritual maturity is, do I pass on the truth about Jesus that I know to other people? In some respects, that's what Paul urges Timothy to do, right? The things that you've heard of me, pass them on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And while that is particularly a responsibility of pastors... I think this passage would say it's also a responsibility of individual believers to move past merely being a baby, everything is done for you, everything you receive, to being mature in faith, which means that you then go and take that truth to other people and you serve other people and you become an example to other people. And so even if you say, I'm not a spiritual baby in the sense that I listen, there's perhaps an element of immaturity in you if you're not taking God's truth and doing something with it. We have a great stewardship of the truth that God has given us. And if we just sort of hoard it for ourselves, we're wasting it, right? Because there's a lot of people who've never heard it, and there's a lot of people who need to hear it again, and it's our responsibility to share it with them. So what does this look like? It could take a lot of different forms, right? It could be in the context of your home. You say, hey, I learned this from this sermon on Sunday or a long time ago or whatever else. And so you talk to your children about that. You talk to your grandchildren about that. Maybe you don't have kids at home right now, so you talk to another church member about it. Maybe you talk to your neighbor about it. Maybe you talk to someone at work about truth that you know. People sometimes think that the path to this is like you take a class and you get a degree or a certification or something like that. And there's perhaps some level at which that's helpful, right? Those of you who've had to take tests so that you can be an electrician or a plumber or a, uh, whatever other sort of work that requires certain tests that you take to evaluate whether you know what you're talking about, there's perhaps some element of assessing those things so that, you know, you don't come to do plumbing at someone's house and you cut up all the pipes and you're like, I have no idea how to put that back together. That's a problem, right? So there should be some basic level of competence. But the test doesn't assure the competence when it comes to Christianity. You can pass a Bible trivia test with a perfect score and still be a spiritual baby. 
you can know all the right answers to questions people might have about where's this in the Bible and how does this fit with that and still be, spiritually speaking, a baby if the truth hasn't sunk in to the degree that you are living it out and then able to teach it to other people. So don't be a spiritual baby because you don't listen to the truth. Don't be a spiritual baby because you don't pass on the truth. And don't be a spiritual baby because you believe everything. You need to have discernment. Why do I say this? Because right after it says you've come to need milk and not solid food, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature. How does it describe the mature? What's the test? What's the evaluation of them? Who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Brothers at Arms last night, we were talking about someone like Joel Osteen. Is there any value whatsoever in any of the things that he says? I would argue very little, if any, particularly since he's preaching another gospel in every case I've ever heard. But there are people who think that he is the epitome of good preaching. If, and, and here's the connection point. They might be a genuine believer, right? You could be a genuine believer and think Joel Osteen is an amazing preacher because there's something lacking in your understanding of what the Bible actually teaches, something significant lacking in it. In the same way that there could be someone in the Catholic Church who is a genuine Christian, but if you actually believe everything they teach, you can't be, right? But those are the exceptions to the rule. We should not say, wow, that person is a Christian and think someone like Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn or whoever the other popular false teacher of the day is, they think they're an amazing preacher. I really want to be like that person because they really, they're really good judges of character. They're really good at saying, here's what the Bible says, and, and so I'm going to follow them. Because if you take one of these popular teachers who, if you listen to them for any decent length of time, very clearly say things other than what the Bible says, you can have your best life now. Jesus said, if you follow me, you'll have suffering. Those two things don't line up. If you lack the discernment to tell the difference between what the Bible says and what some popular preacher is saying, that's another sign that at least in that area, you're spiritually speaking a baby still and you need to grow up. What are other ways that this shows up? Sometimes it shows up in you know, things that we might post on Facebook, right? Um, good friend of mine when I was working at Inner City, um, posted something that was a quote from, probably he didn't know that this person was a false teacher, but this guy was a false teacher, and it just sounded like a good quote, so he posted it. And the danger of doing that is that even if that person said that one thing right that one time, we need to be careful about giving people the impression that we agree with everything that person has said. Now, you can take that to the extreme, right? I don't think we have to put disclaimers on every single thing that we say. Paul quoted from pagan philosophers in his sermon in Acts, right, at Athens. So there is some measure of saying, here's something that an unbeliever said and happens to be true without everybody saying you agree with everything they said. But if we're consistently sharing and upholding and putting before people the words of people who, as a general rule, are completely wrong on most of what the Bible has to say, 
that probably or potentially shows a lack of discernment. Or at least it looks that way to other people, right? So lack of discernment in the people that we uphold, whether that be in conversation or, or what we share online. Lack of discernment about what we say and when we say it. There is an element of immaturity of, as Proverbs would say, just saying the first thing that comes to your mind, right? Spiritually speaking or just practically in life. So we need wisdom, we need maturity, we need to grow up in Christ. How do we know if we still need to grow up in Christ? We all do. But particular signs of it are, we haven't listened to basic truth and we have to keep hearing it over and over again. We are not passing on the truth that we know, we're just sort of sitting on it. Remember Jesus' parable about the person who buried his talent? Didn't praise him, right? Or thirdly, we show a definite lack of discernment in the things that we say, the uh, people that we hold up as, as Christian examples, those sorts of things. So we need to grow up like Jesus. But connected with this, and perhaps another way of saying the same thing is, stop being lazy in Jesus. I take this particularly from chapter 6, verse 12. So that you would not be sluggish. The NIV says, so you would not be lazy. If you go outside, and it's been raining, and you see a slug... Or you're like, yeah, that's what I want my life to be. Generally not. I mean, I think, you know, all of the women in here probably be like, that's gross, I don't want to touch it. Well, most of them. Maggie likes to pick up worms. But um, most of us would see the slug crawling along and say, yeah, I don't want people to be like, yeah, that person's a slug. Oozing their way through life. Are you oozing your way through your Christian life? Don't be lazy in Jesus. As a genuine follower of Jesus, what does this look like? First of all, don't get tired of the gospel, but realize it's more than just pray a prayer. I had one of my students uh, ask me this question in connection with something we were talking about. He said, so what about people who hear the gospel like every day at school or hear chapel messages constantly are they, something like, are they right in getting tired of it? And my response was, if all they're hearing constantly is you need to pray a prayer and trust in Jesus, you need to pray a prayer and trust in Jesus, you need to pray a prayer and trust in Jesus, that does get tiresome, right? But there's the gospel in its very core sense. Here's the basic um, collection of truths that you need to believe in order to be right with God through Jesus. And then as you move outward from that, there are things that are true based on that, and then there are applications based on that. And so there's one sense in which we only need to hear the gospel once to be saved, and there's another sense in which we need to constantly be reminded of the gospel, because as we go through the New Testament particularly, look at a book like Ephesians, for example. Chapters 1 through 3, doctrine. Chapter 4 through 6, application. What's the application based on? Gospel truths about what Jesus has done and who he is and what that means for you. So there's a sense in which we need to keep hearing the gospel over and over again. But the author of Hebrews stresses this idea 
that it's more than just pray a prayer or just basic truths over and over again because chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. That would be sort of the initial act of salvation. You turn away from your works, you turn away from sin, you turn to God, you believe in Him. And then he says of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And so these would have been basic things that would have been connected with their experience of the Christian life. But if you have to keep having explained to you those things over and over again, the author's desire was to say, we should be able to move past those things. All right, so you know that Jesus died for your sins. What else is there to know about Jesus? You know that if washings is referring to something like baptism, you know that you need to be baptized. The resurrection of the dead, you know that people are raised from the dead. Alright, so let's build on that foundation, not forget about it, but build on that foundation, and let's talk about more things that God has for you to know and believe and tell other people and be encouraged by and be convicted by. The goal is maturity. Let us press on to maturity. The goal is not endlessly relearning basic or settled truths. But there's a danger here, and that is that we ought to fear that God's judgment could fall on a false profession. Verses 4 through 6 have created a lot of controversy here, 4 through 8. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, people look at these verses, and they get into arguments about, how does this fit in with my system of theology? But what's the point of these verses? The point of these verses is, stop being lazy and thinking that you are right with God simply because you are around or participating in Christian things. And say, can you name an example of someone like this? Yeah, Judas Iscariot. Judas was with the disciples. He heard Jesus' teaching. He quite probably performed miracles. He was face to face with God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And the testimony of the Gospels is that He was damned that he died apart from God, eternally condemned, in his own self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And so what does a passage like this urge us to do? Not to get into arguments about how this piece of theology fits with that piece of theology, although that is something to consider. This passage urges us to say, do you think that being around church means that you're genuinely a follower of God? Or that passage in Matthew that we've returned to several times recently. They say to me, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, I never knew you. 
This is a particular problem in a society that has largely been, if not friendly toward Christianity, it's sort of like, you go do your thing, I don't believe it, but it's fine. When we have that sort of a society, then there are a lot of people in churches who think that they're Christians just because my parents go to church, I prayed a prayer when I was four, I don't do a lot of the bad things that non-Christians do. Christianity has a much higher expectation for followers of Jesus than just family connections, what you did 20 years ago, or the fact that you don't get arrested all the time. If we say, well, that's what Christianity means, there's a whole lot of people that aren't going to heaven that meet that standard. What are the tests of Christianity? Look at verses 7 and 8. Ground that drinks the rain which falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. So you go plant a garden. You put tomatoes in it. You put peppers in it. You put fruit trees in it. Whatever it is. The plant doesn't produce the fruit that you're looking for, what's going to happen to that plant? It's going to get ripped out at the end of the season. It's going to go in the compost bin or get burned on the trash pile. You see the parallel the author of Hebrews is making to our experience? The test is not, do you do stuff? The test is, do you bear fruit? John urged the Pharisees when they self-righteously came and wanted to be baptized. He said, do you bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Because everybody can say, I repented, I turned over a new leaf, I'm a new person. But the test is whether that sticks, whether that lasts, whether that manifests itself in obedience. Why do I say that? Because it said in chapter 5 and verse 9, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now we have to get the order right. You can't obey before you believe. But if you believe and then don't obey, you didn't really believe. And that's the testimony throughout Scripture. And so when we come to a warning passage like this, that there are those who have an intimate and close connection to godly things and still fall under God's judgment... We ought not say, well, true Christians can't lose their salvation and God is sovereign and eternal security and all those sorts of things. Even though those things are true, we ought to say, am I being lazy in my Christian life? Now, notice the tone shifts or changes in verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So how do we know that the author of Hebrews is not addressing most of his audience and saying, I think all of you are unbelievers and you all need to repent right now and none of you should have any hope of heaven because verse 9 says, we are convinced of better things concerning you. 
So here's a, here's a warning. Take it seriously, but it's not intended to have the genuine follower of God constantly doubting whether they know God. It's intended to keep us on the right track, right? Participate, I would say, in God's joyous work in your life. So there's a warning, but there's also evidence of God's work. And this is where we struggle, because we think that it's going to go from I don't believe anything about God to I know everything about God and do everything perfectly. How many of you have experienced that in your Christian life? If you raise your hand, I'm going to tell you just straight up you're a liar. Okay? Because, 1 John says, if we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. So who's more likely to be lying, us or God? We are. So we still have sin, but as we confess that sin, Jesus forgives us and cleanses us from unrighteousness. And other parts of Scripture, like in Ephesians and other places, talk about putting off sin and putting on righteousness as being in this ongoing process. And so when, we talk, when it comes to other people, here's what we tend to think. You believe Jesus, you ought to be perfect today. But we cut ourselves a little bit more slack, Right? We ought to recognize that all of us are in the process of becoming more like Jesus. And so we have this tension. We ought not be complacent about those who don't know God and act like they're okay. But we also don't need to have unreasonable and unbiblical expectations of perfection for people who do genuinely know God, but who are sinning in a particular area. What I mean by that is... Something like what happens, like right now, this time of year, as we look at all the conversations that are happening about politics. We hear someone say something that we disagree with, and then we hear them say something that actually corresponds to a question the Bible raises. They may not have the right answer to it. And we say, I'm going to disagree with everything you said because you're over there and I'm over here. Biblical humility would say, I need to recognize that I'm not yet perfect. So, if someone over here is talking about the attitude that people ought to have toward foreigners within their borders, and my response is to immediately throw out everything the Old Testament has to say about the widow and the orphan and the foreigner and say, well, that doesn't matter because that doesn't fit with my party's platform. There is an element of hypocrisy and blindness to our own sinfulness that we need to deal with in our hearts. On the other hand, if someone comes over here and says, well, I don't agree with over here because I care about this thing, but I'm going to not care about the lives of unborn children. I'm not going to care about law and order. I'm not going to care about all those sorts of things because that doesn't agree with where my ideas are over here. What does the Bible have to say about the value of life for all people and the importance of following rule and governments enforcing order and all those sorts of things? There are things which people will say, even people with whom we strongly disagree, that ought to drive us back to the Bible and say, what does the Bible have to say about this? And in connection with this, we need to recognize that seeing God's work doesn't mean 
that we have, that we all vote the same way, or that we all look exactly alike, or that we all enjoy exactly the same things. What it means is, we are all striving to grow closer to Jesus through what is laid out in the Bible. And the challenge for that is, you may be ahead of somebody in this area and way behind them in another area, and so when you compare this area, you're like, yeah, I'm really spiritual compared to you. And then when you look at that area, you're like, yeah, you're not spiritual at all. Don't assume that means the person's not a Christian. Now, again, if the entire characterization of their life is laziness and carelessness and no concern for things of God, there's a problem, and that's where the warning comes in in verses 4 through 8. But if it is they're not perfect yet, the author of Hebrews says, We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, although we are speaking in this way. How else do we participate in God's work in our lives? By remembering that God is faithful to reward obedience. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. Well, this goes back to that Matthew passage too, right? What was the sign of genuine believers in Jesus' evaluation? Matthew 7 and I think chapter 22. You gave them a cup of cold water in my name. You visited them in prison and helped them in their distress. When did we do any of these things for you, Lord? When you did it to the least of these who follow me. Genuine faith is demonstrated by actions which God sees even if nobody else does and which God rewards even if no one ever points them out in this life. And that ought to give us hope and confidence to follow God earnestly and diligently because who's more qualified to reward your service? An imperfect human being who's not going to notice it every time and who's not going to recognize it for the sacrifice it might have been, or God who sees everything. So look forward for God's reward and don't, like the Pharisees, feel like you have to get everything right now and be noticed by everybody right now. And then finally, and I think this is the main point of this section, be diligent in your faith. How long? It says to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Well, what's the end? The end, commonly in Scripture, would be at the point at which you die or Jesus returns and you stand in God's presence. So think about um, what Paul says in Corinthians. He says, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because faith you only need until you see it. Hope you only need until it comes true. Love persists. Love for God and love for others indefinitely, right? And so we have this full assurance, this full confidence of hope that what God has said he will do, he will do. And we need to diligently follow in that until the end. We die or Jesus comes back because then that hope will be realized. So, do we see any examples of this in Scripture? The Apostle Paul says, I do not count myself as having arrived, but I press toward the mark or the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's not until he's virtually on his deathbed that he says, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith. And so, when can we relax? When can we have a day off in the Christian life? 
Not now. Keep being diligent. And we're diligent not in our own strength and not so we can pat ourselves on the back and not so we can say, hey, look at me. We are diligent in God's power for God's glory. In contrast to being lazy or sluggish, What's another motivation that's given here? Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In chapter 11, which we're going to get to later, there are examples of these who through faith and diligence have inherited the promises. You and I aren't there yet, but there are people who are there yet, who are there already. What people? People like Mike. People like Claude. A whole host of people that I never had opportunity to meet, but that you know from this church who have gone before and were faithful to God. And so much as later in Hebrews 11 it will call us to say there is a cloud of witnesses, don't disappoint them, but more importantly, don't disappoint the God that you follow. There's a little bit glimpse of that right here, which is, If you're lazy, you are putting to shame the testimony of those who've gone before you. I mean, the greatest motivation is God's judgment and that God is displeased with you. But as a secondary motivation, do you want to look at that godly person that you know who's gone before you and be like, yeah, I quit when I was 50 because I decided it was too hard to follow God. I quit when I was 65 because I was like, I'm retired, I'm done with this Christian thing. I quit when I was 25 because I wanted to have my whole life to follow what I wanted to do. Don't be lazy as you follow Jesus. Do we struggle with being lazy? You can be the busiest person in the world and still struggle with being lazy because that's just part of our sin nature. But you need to grow up in Jesus. Jesus obeyed His Father despite all of the things that He went through. So we ought not be sitting around like spiritual babies saying, well, everybody has to do things for me. Everybody has to come help me out with things. I'm going to keep receiving truth and receiving truth and never do anything with it. But the flip side of that is, if we're going to press on in our Christian life, it means we have to be diligent and not lazy. The two things are just different ways of saying the same thing. Grow up in Jesus. Stop being lazy in Jesus. The goal is maturity. Why does this matter? Well, because we saw last week that the goal is to enter into God's rest. And here we see the goal is to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Are those two different things? No, they're the same thing. Hold fast in Jesus so you enter God's rest. Grow up and stop being lazy so you realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Why is the author of Hebrews saying the same thing in a different way? It's 
Sometimes because we didn't get it the first time. Sometimes because it helps to turn and look at it from a different angle. But the same basic truth is here. God wants you to be mature in Christ. He is helping you to do it. He does it through the ministry of each one of us here in this church. But we have to work. We can't just act like it's going to happen automatically. Going back to the example of parenting. How many times do you have to tell your kids to make their bed or pick up their shoes or whatever else before they start doing it? Now look at it from God's perspective. It's you and I. We're the children. We need to grow up. We need to not be lazy. We need to fulfill the responsibilities God has for us. And by God's grace, we will. And by God's grace, we can then pass what we have learned on to others. Grow up in Jesus. Stop being lazy. Follow Him. Let's pray. Lord, these are important truths, but putting them into practice in our daily lives can be challenging. We pray that you give us good discussion later tonight about what that looks like. We pray that even now we would think about how to practically apply these truths as we go from here this afternoon, as we go throughout the week. Lord, so much of our society encourages us to To be Peter Pan, but not in a fantasy, exciting, floating through the clouds sort of way, more in a sitting, watching TV, being lazy sort of way. Neither of those is what you call us to. You don't call us to be young forever. You call us to mature in the faith. You don't call us to sit around and wait for people to do things for us. You call us to obey you right now. You have blessed us with so much, Lord. Help us not to waste it. Most importantly, I pray for everyone here that no one would be in the state of chapter 6, like Judas, who's been around church and heard lots of truth, but has no true salvation. I pray that everyone here would really and truly know you. And if we do, I pray that you would help us not to be content to just sit around and be lazy, not to sit around and be childish, but to serve you faithfully and diligently until the end. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.